It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, whether we are ready or not. Thank you for taking the time out of a busy holiday season to join us at Dayspring Fellowship as we celebrate the reason we celebrate, Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. In every season, our team here is committed to helping you grow in your relationship with Jesus. Whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. Our prayer for this service is that God would meet you in the deepest places of your heart as he fills you with love, joy, peace, and hope in a world that desperately needs more love, joy, peace, and hope. We also pray that you find Dayspring the kind of church that you can call home. We are really more of a family. We're the kind of people who will welcome you with open arms, just as you are. Nobody here has their act completely together, so don't think you need to either. This is a safe place to check out the claims of Jesus. It's a safe place to have doubts and questions about spirituality. We like helping people figure out the next steps on their journey. So if you haven't arrived yet, whatever that means for you, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your church home, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Previously on Velma's. We'll show that Fountain of Grace Memorial Church. We'll serve up Christmas Velma style, served with a smile. Now, I'm still uh, waiting for the good Lord to bring my Mary along. Hey there, darling. Can I get you anything else, some more coffee? It's not good for my baby. Oh, you're pregnant, how nice. <laughs> She's perfect. Perfectly wrong. What do you mean? Mary's got to be special and better than everyone else. Ma, don't you sound just like you're from the Fountain of Grace Memorial Church? This is different, and she's not the right girl. You mean the right kind of girl, don't you? You're 20 years old, aren't you, Mary Catherine, fiance of G.I. Joseph? Yeah, how'd you know? I have a sense about these things. My mama, she had a sense about her. I think it was Lysol. You're gonna be my Mary in our little nativity scene tomorrow night. Sweetheart, and the perfect choice for Mary. I tell you what, I think tonight's gonna be better than I ever dreamed. Buddy, what are you doing with all that stuff? Oh, you know, well, with it being Christmas Eve and all, I'm, I'm gonna build a Santa trap. You, you see, every year, the day after Christmas, I go back to the storeroom, and there's a brand new apron hanging there with a crisp $50 bill in the pocket. <laughs> and this year, I'm gonna catch him. And then what? 
I ain't got that far. <laughs> you know, buddy, there are some mysteries in life best unsolved. Well, if that was true, then they wouldn't have that unsolved mystery show, would they? <laughs> <laughs> well, you got me there, buddy. You got me there. Excuse me, miss. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, that woman who just went to the back back there. Yeah. Her name wouldn't be Valerie by any chance, would it? Who, <laughs> Velma? Is Velma's name Valerie? Well, obviously not. <laughs> so her name's Velma? Always has been. Uh, and she's from around here. Are you writing a book, mister? No, I, I'm sorry. Look, I, I just thought she was somebody that I knew from a long time ago, and I... Well, since she's from around here, it's not possible that she's that person. Um, this woman owe you money or something? No, 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 nothing like that. <gasps> she's an old flame, isn't she? <laughs> and you've, you've carried this torch for all these years? Well, something like that. She's an old girlfriend that left without a word. Oh, and you've been pining away ever since. Oh, how romantic! Mm, no, it's not that romantic. And not that it's any of your business, but she was pregnant when she left. I've always wondered what happened to my child. But hey, obviously it's not your Velma, right? Because she's from around here. Well, now, who said she's from around here? Nadine. What? Henry, we've always said that Velma's had a mysterious past. So she's not from around here? Well, well she is and, and she ain't. Well, how long have you been looking for this woman? Well, I gave up looking a while back, but I'd say maybe 25 years. Well, hold on. Did you just say 25 years? Yes. I mean, why? Why did? How long has she lived here? Well, it's kind of hard to say exactly. But I would guess uh, about 25 years. That cat is a sweetheart. Oh, hello there. Welcome to Velma's. <laughs> hello, Valerie. It's been a long time. So tell me, do I have a son or a daughter? That was Go Tell It on the Mountain. And speaking of which, I'm telling you, you better get on over to the community center and let Velma serve you up some Christmas spirit. I promise you, you don't want to miss it. Well, clearly she does. Come on, Velma, where are you? Any sign of her yet? No, not hiding her hair. Oh. Yeah, let me tell you, that's a lot of hair to hide. Oh, come on now, Henry. <laughs> this is no time for joking. Uh, calm down, Nadine. She'll turn up. I don't know, Henry. She was real upset this morning. Yeah, I went by her trailer and it was all dark and all her garden gnomes were gone. Well, you don't think she'd leave without saying goodbye, do you? You know she wouldn't. Besides, she never leaves town without putting Buddy here in the kennel. Oh, Henry. <laughs> oh, Henry, let me ask you something. How long have you known my mom and daddy? I don't know. Um, since you were a little girl, I guess. But you didn't know them before I was born, did you? No, nah, I don't guess so. Um, why? It's nothing important. Well, I sure hope she shows up soon. In a few minutes, we're going to have a whole bunch of people ready for a Velma-style Christmas. So. Valerie. What? Well, I understand her name is Valerie. Okay, okay. I'm confused. I mean, why would Velma change her name to Valerie when everything around here already says Velma? No, honey, she, she changed her name from Valerie to Velma. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad she finally came to her senses. Well, I think uh, Velma not being here is uh, probably the least of our worries. What do you know that you're not telling me, Henry? Well, I stopped by the firehouse to see if they've seen Velma. And well, uh, they're all out on a big fire, two counties away. What? No! But th those are our wise men! How can they come from afar if they're out fighting afar? Oh. Well, at least we'll have music. Well, I sure am glad <laughs> to see you, Sonny. Oh, one more thing. Um, Bill Robinson came down with walking pneumonia. 
and the doctor sent him to bed. Wait, if, if he had to go to bed, then why do they call it the walking pneumonia? Great! First no wise men, now no Joseph. So that leaves us with a Mary, an angel, some shepherds, and a whole bunch of animals. Oh, uh, I forgot to tell you something. What is it, buddy? It, it looks like a spoon. What? What did you forget to tell me? Um, uh, I, I, I left the gate open last night and all the animals run off. Perfect. No wonder Velma left. I give up. Hey, Nadine, where's Velma? Miami Beach, if she's got any sense. Well, she never told us what carols to play. We don't have a Velma, we don't have any Wiseman, we don't have any animals, and we don't have a Joseph, so I guess you're about right. In fact, I'd say you're just right. Um, hey, Sonny, how tall are you? Uh, about six foot. Boy, it doesn't matter. You'll do. Henry, go take him out back and show him Joseph's house coat of many colors. And that's a different Joseph, Nadine? Do I look like I need a Sunday school lesson right now, Henry? Uh, let's go, Sonny. Just go. Oh, we got a little less than two hours, and we may just pull this thing off after all. Hey, buddy, go get me a whole bunch of animals. I don't care what they are. Just go. Is that a fire truck? No, it's it's a bus with big old sideburns oh. on the side. What? That boy has lost his... It's Elvis. Oh, hey, darling. Uh, listen, my cell phone's busted. You got a phone I can borrow? Sure. <clears throat> Here you go. <laughs> oh, and um, do you have the time? Huh. Well, usually for Elvis, I'd make the time, but I'm a little busy right now, honey. <laughs> Actually, I mean, uh, what time is it? Oh, it, uh, it's 6.15. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, darling, listen, <clears throat> me and the boys, there's no way we're going to make it home tonight. I think what we'll do is just park here, head on out in the morning. Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. Merry Christmas. You're an Elvis impersonator, aren't you? Henry, you're brighter than a three-way bulb. Well, yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I'm one of three Elvises. We like to call ourselves, um, we're three hangs. Avorian <laughs> heart. Bearing gifts we travel That boy's not right, is he? <laughs> Wait just a second. Say that last part again. Um, with your kings. <laughs> Do you believe in miracles, Elvis? Well, here we are, just six days from Christmas, five days from Christmas Eve, and now you can clearly see you will not want to miss our Christmas Eve service, or you'll never know how the pageant came together at Velma's, or Valerie's, whatever you want to call her. You know, we all have extended family members that are weird. I, I know that that isn't very Christian, is it? So let me start that again. You know, we all have extended family members that are extra grace required, if you catch my drift. <laughs> if you can't think of any in your family, then it's probably you. <laughs> have you ever noticed that most of them are on your spouse's side of the family? I mean, my, my family's normal, but hers? <laughs> Come on. 
I mean, you love them and all, but they are much easier to love from a distance. You're glad they live in Idaho and not in your neck of the woods. Before the advent of the internet and live streaming, I could probably entertain us for quite a while telling stories of my strange family members. But now, you never know who is watching or when. And most of those weird relatives don't know they are weird. They just walk around clueless to their impact on the rest of the family. And family gatherings are weird enough as it is without everyone being mad at me because I outed someone. To be fair, I'm pretty sure they're talking about how weird I am to their friends as well. After all, on the Voigt side of the family, I am considered to be the black sheep. You know, she's a lawyer, he's a rancher. <laughs> that one might have a drug problem, but at least he's not a pastor. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, as we've already discovered, Jesus had some of those people in his family as well. Not in his immediate family, although we don't know much about them, really, but in his extended family tree, going back in his lineage further than most of us could. There are some downright embarrassing people that he's descended from. And most of the time at Christmas, we just gloss over their names, which we find in Matthew's story of Jesus' birth. That's how Matthew starts his gospel, with the genealogy of Jesus, uh, in which he made the unusual choice to include some strange, even R-rated characters. He didn't have to include them. He could have just left them out and given us the impression that this perfect little baby came from a perfect family. But as we've already seen this month, he included them because they are not only part of the story, they are the point of the story. Remember that Matthew is on the backside of the resurrection, and now he's going to write a biography of Jesus, trying to help his Jewish audience understand that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. And not only that, but as religious as they might be, they've gotten it all wrong, and Jesus came to set it right. Because they've missed the message that God has invited us to approach him, not based on anything we've done, Instead, God has invited us into a relationship with him based on something he's done for us, which is a very difficult concept to wrap your head around, not just for them, but for everyone through all of time. And for them, their focus on the law instead of the lawgiver had created a deeply rooted system of self-righteousness. So right from the beginning, Matthew knew he needed to prepare them for what they were about to hear. He had to show them that Jesus had all the right credentials, that he was not only Jewish, a descendant of the great patriarch Abraham, but also that he was related to King David. And along the way, strategically along the way, Matthew stops and highlights some of the other people related to Jesus who needed what we all need, the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. And as we're going to see today, in a dramatic turn from the expected, Matthew laser focuses in on the faults of the one person Jesus is most closely associated with in his genealogy. He gets to this one particular name. This is the most important person in Jesus' lineage, aside from Abraham and arguably more important than him. Everyone knew the story of this man. Well, the stories of this man. He was maybe even is still today 
among the top three most revered leaders in the history of the Jewish nation. He is so famous that when I tell you his name, even you will at, at least know some of his story. Even if you've never read the Bible or if you've, this is, you've never been in church to this point in your life. There is so much Matthew could have said to highlight how wonderful he was. But instead of saying anything good, Matthew slams on the brakes and forces everyone to focus on what this man wouldn't want you to think about when you thought about his life. Now, as we've seen previously in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew writes in a way that makes you stop, pause, and consider that even though this is the man most closely associated with Jesus, even with everything good he did, everything right he stood for, all of his character and ethics and pursuit of God, for at least one season in his life, all of that good fell by the wayside and was overshadowed by one incredibly dismal failure. In fact, in one of the lesser-known stories of his life that you probably don't remember, even if you've heard it before, this guy, out of insecurity, told a lie. And as a result, more than 80 priests were murdered. This guy betrayed one of his most loyal friends and had him put to death in order to keep a secret secret as a cover-up. This is a guy who ran around on his wife and destroyed his family to the point that even his kids went to war with him, against him. There are so many embarrassing moments and seasons in this man's life, and yet he is still the man whose name is most closely linked with the name of Jesus. So let's just take it from the top. Here's how Matthew begins the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, let's set up the context, and then we'll pop back into the Old Testament to look at this guy's story. Uh, by now, you're familiar with these words. Matthew starts in verse 1 of, of uh, Matthew 1. This is, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, some translations actually say Jesus, the Messiah, a son of of David, which Matthew knows, as did his audience, that he isn't an actual son of David. He is a many great grandson of David. At that time, it was pretty common to just abbreviate someone's genealogy this way. But right here in verse 1, here's the man we're talking about, the man who's, who's most associated with Jesus, David. But let's keep reading. Um, as Matthew details out Jesus' lineage. Uh, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of, Ma of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. We talked about th that earlier this month. Uh, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We talked about her last week. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, he could have just kept going with the pattern and said that Solomon was the father of but instead he pauses and he says David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, why not David the giant slayer? Or David the psalmist? 
or David the warrior, David the shepherd boy. There are so many good things that Matthew could have said about David. You know, he could have even just stopped with David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. That was true. Solomon wasn't born out of wedlock. David had married Bathsheba at that point. But Matthew tacks on that last phrase, the widow of Uriah. And in four little words, surfaces the most embarrassing chapter of David's life. The one chapter that he would wish for the power to undo. To go back and rewrite if he could. Why would Matthew draw our attention to King David's greatest failure? Some of you already know the answer to that question because that's the point of the story he's about to tell in his biography of Jesus that we call the Gospel of Matthew. And in four simple little words, he reminds his audience that their national hero, the most preeminent king in their history, the focal point of the kingdom of Israel who held all of their hope for the Jewish Messiah, that this national treasure was also a sinner, a failure as a leader in every sense of the word, as a friend, as a father, and as a husband. So let's look at David's story. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can find your way to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. While you're getting there, I will set up the scene. Uh, for those of you who aren't Bible people, maybe you're skeptical about the Bible, uh, here's something to factor into your skepticism. The Bible isn't just a book. It's a collection of ancient manuscripts that tell one story stretched out over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And this story of David is actual history and takes place about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Now, here's the setup for the scene. Uh, at that time in, Israel, in the history of Israel, the two most important men in the kingdom were King Saul, the first king of Israel, and a prophet named Samuel. And God tells Samuel that he wants Samuel to anoint a new king for Israel, a child king. And so he sends Samuel to the little town of Bethlehem. This is the first mention of Bethlehem uh, some thousand years before Jesus' birth, put it on the map. And it, it just happens to be where a man named Jesse lives with his eight sons. As Samuel heads to Bethlehem under the guise of making an offering to the Lord because Saul wouldn't be happy with Samuel if he knew what was really going on. And after he gets to Bethlehem, when he gets to Bethlehem, he finds Jesse and invites him and his sons to join him for the offering. Jesse brings seven of his eight sons with him because one is out taking care of the sheep with their hired hands. And Samuel looks at Jesse's oldest son. You can read this later in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and says to himself, oh, look at this kid. He must be the guy I was sent to anoint. He just he looks like a king. And internally, God nudges him and says, nope, move on. And so he moves to the, the second born. Again, a fine specimen of manliness. And again, nope, move on. He moves to the third, then the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, same answer every time. And by this point, I'm pretty sure Samuel's wondering if there is another Jesse with eight sons in Bethlehem. I mean, maybe he got the wrong family. And so he says to Jesse, you know, these are all fine sons, but is there any chance you have more? 
Well, yeah. I mean, there's David. He's out in the fields taking care of the sheep. I didn't think, well, (laughs) send for him. We'll just wait right here until he arrives. Now, as a side note, there is some speculation in the historical record of Israel that David was a brother from another mother, which made him less than in the eyes of his father and brothers, and would explain why he was initially left out and the disdain of his brothers, which we see later on in his story. But again, we don't, we don't know that for a fact. We don't know how long it took to find David and to get him back home, but he walks in all sweaty and hot from hoofing it back to the house, and he he hasn't had a shower, so he smells like sheep and teenage boy. If you've ever had a teenage boy, you know what I mean by that. And, And God nudges Samuel and said, that's my boy. He's the one I've chosen. So Samuel anoints David and tells him he is going to be the next king of Israel. David doesn't really know what that means, so he grabs some food and runs out to count sheep again. Just goes about being a kid. Again, you can read the story for yourself. And years and years go by, and in a dramatic series of events, David, the little shepherd boy who was left out by his father, becomes the second king of Israel. And then years and years go by, and one day David is sitting at home in the palace that he's built, and he looks out the window, and he sees the elaborate tent that they call the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the earthly mobile home of God. It's where he dwelled, where they kept a box called the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark were the Ten Commandments and some other things, and wherever the Israelites went, they carried this box around, which represented the presence of God. They knew that God was bigger than a box, but this box was a reminder that God was with them. It was the focal point of their worship, their most holy national treasure that lived in a mobile home. David thinks to himself, I've got such a nice place to call home. I shouldn't have a nicer place to dwell than God. He deserves a real house like I have. And so David decided to build a temple for God. And he goes to work raising money, designing the house, getting things ready to break ground. And God sends another prophet. Samuel's dead by this point. And he sends this other prophet to give him some good news and some not as good news. So here's where we'll pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. The prophet's name was uh, Nathan, and Nathan comes to David and gives him this message. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now, I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. Now, think about how amazing this is. 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus, through Nathan, God tells David, David, I'm going to make you famous as famous as anyone who ever lives. So let's just check and see. How many of you knew before you came today, or I said anything, how many of you knew anything about David? Raise your, go ahead, raise your hands, and then just kind of look around. Even people who aren't religious have heard of David and Goliath. So clearly, 
those words have become true. 3,000 years later, people of every nation, culture, and tongue all around the world know who David was. That was predicted 3,000 years ago. Now, drop down to the second half of verse 11. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings, meaning that people for generations will know your name. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. So you're, you're going to have a son who will be king. This was actually Solomon. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. In other words, here is the less than good news. David, you won't get to build the temple, but your son Solomon will. Which happened? Solomon built that famous wonder of the ancient world, also known as Solomon's temple. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, don't miss what comes next. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod like any father would do. In, in other words, David, when you or the people who follow you rebel and do your own thing, I will punish them. Because that's what a good father does. And I'm a good father. I won't let them get away with it unnoticed. Verse 15. But my favor... Now, different translations use different words here. The, the, the good old King James Version, but my mercy. The NIV uses, but my love. Uh, in the original language, the word means goodness, kindness, loving kindness, faithfulness. Uh, it's all of those things. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This is an unconditional promise to King David. You're not going to be the one to build my temple. I, I appreciate the thought, but we'll leave that to your son. However, your throne, your name, your family, your lineage will be established forever. A pretty incredible moment, right? I mean, talk about life-changing. Talk about a mountaintop experience. And then, <laughs> just four chapters later in the same book of the Bible, we find one of the most humiliating scenes of David's life. Talk about pushing the limits of God's patience. Now, most of us have heard bits and pieces of the story before. I'll let you read it on your own later. For the sake of time, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. So the Israelite kingdom is at war, but David isn't at the battlefront where he's been for so much of his life. Now he's too important to the kingdom to take those kinds of risks. So he's at home. And one day, he goes out onto his balcony overlooking the city, and as he's scanning the skyline, he sees a woman sunbathing on the roof and thinks to himself, hubba hubba. <laughs> and then he turns to his servant and said, who's that? Well, that's General Uriah's wife. Where's Uriah? Out fighting for you on the battlefront. Well, well go get his wife. I'd like to talk to her. And they do more than talk. 
And a few weeks later, she sends him a positive pregnancy test. And the cover-up begins. David sends for Uriah on some pretense of being updated about the war. Oh, thank you for that update, Uriah. Now go home and enjoy your wife before you return to the battlefield. And the next morning, David finds out that Uriah never made it home. He slept right there in the palace. Uh, Uriah, why didn't you go home? Well, how, how could I enjoy the pleasures of my wife while my men are sleeping in the cold on the battlefield? Well, uh, why don't you stay one more day? And that night, he gets Uriah drunk, thinking he'll lose self-control and end up at, at home in Bathsheba's arms. Go home, Uriah. How could I? <laughs> My men are bleeding and uncomfortable and fighting. It's just not right. Even drunk, Uriah exhibits the kind of character that David is lacking in this moment. So far in the story, Uriah has proven himself to be the most righteous one. Lucky for David, God has already made his unconditional promise. And then David does the unthinkable. He writes a note to Joab, the five-star general in, star, in charge of everyone on the battlefield. And he sends Uriah back into battle. Uriah delivers the note to Joab, not knowing that he's just delivered his own death sentence. Joab, the note says, tomorrow put Uriah in the heat of the battle. And then when the fighting is at its fiercest, have everyone just back up and leave Uriah there to fight alone. I guess Joab wasn't very happy about his orders. Uriah was a good fighter after all. Joab didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, but orders are orders, and David is the supreme commander of all things Israel. So the next day, Uriah and his men pursued the enemy right up to the walls of the city that they were trying to take, and an archer takes Uriah in the heat of the battle. The message gets back to David and to Bathsheba. She mourns the loss of her husband, and then David marries her. Cover up achieved. No one will ever know. Of course, one will know. God knew. And here's what the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 27, when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Now again, actually I think that's whitewashing it a little. In the original language, David grieved the Lord. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you're God what do you do? I mean, you, you have a decision to make if God makes decisions. I know God doesn't really work that way, but consider this for a moment. Does God retract his promise, or is a promise a promise? God gave David an unconditional promise, but now circumstances have changed. There is new information to consider. In light of this unrighteousness, this evil, is this still a promise God wants to keep? God sends the prophet Nathan to David once again, this time to confront David. David, you've done evil in the sight of the Lord. You've sinned. 
And the Bible says that David went to the tabernacle and fell down before the altar of God as he confessed his sin. You can read what he said in Psalm 51. David wrote it uh, as he recognized his sin. He doesn't say, mistakes were made. He says, I have sinned before you and I beg your forgiveness. And of course, God forgives him. But that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. God humbles and punishes David, and it is brutal discipline. But God keeps his unconditional promise. Andy Stanley, who by now you know gave us the framework for this series, uh, uh, quotes a friend of his, Charlie Renfro, when he says that God dragged David through hell sideways. First of all, the baby Bathsheba was pregnant with died a few days after birth. Then his family fell apart. His sons went to war with each other. His favorite son murdered his oldest son. Then his favorite general, Joab, murdered uh, his favorite son. His family was split, and for a season his kingdom was divided. He had to move out of the palace and go on the run while his son humiliated him very publicly. And what had been done in secret was now on public display as a lesson for all of time. But through that, through all of that, God never withdrew his promise. Because even though God's punishment was brutal, his decision was firm. His punishment was for a season, his promise eternal. And because of that, 990 years later, a man in the line of David named Joseph made his way back to Bethlehem with his very pregnant wife, Mary where she gave birth to the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of King David. All because God keeps his promises. Now imagine you are Matthew. Matthew, the ex-tax collector who knows what it means to be forgiven. Matthew, the ex-tax collector who knew that on his own merits, he could never, he would never be able to come before God based on his own righteousness. Imagine that you are about to write the greatest story ever told, the story about a Savior coming uh, and dying to pay all of mankind's sin debt so that every man, woman, and child through all of ages could come before God on the basis of what God had done for them and not the other way around. And you are telling this story to a group of people who put David on a pedestal, who focused on all the good parts of his life while glossing over the bad. If you're Matthew, how could you skip over this part? Because the story is a key component of the entire New Testament story. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. When God makes a promise, even the worst sin imaginable won't force God to go back on his word. Matthew was about to tell the story of a new promise, a new promise that wasn't made to one individual, but to everyone in the whole world, and that promise would be sealed in blood, but not the blood of both parties, just one, because this too was an unconditional promise. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he established a new covenant between God and all of mankind, but only one party bled because it was unconditional. And as Matthew begins to tell this new story, the story of Jesus, he is writing from the other side of the cross, and he already knows what is coming. 
So how could he not stop at the righteous man these self-righteous people looked up to and show them that even the righteous aren't righteous enough? Even the righteous need the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. And just as God kept his promise to David, we can trust that he'll keep his promise to us. That nothing can ever separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. Like, how could he not stop at the perfect illustration? The angel said it better than anyone. We find his words in the Gospel of Luke, where we find the other record of the Christmas story. And here's what the angel said. You've heard it a thousand times. But the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Good news for who? (laughs) All people. You are all people. Not just Jewish people, not just first century people. All people of all time. God is making his promise to the good people, the bad people, the in-between people, the people who think they are better than other people, the people who know they're not, the people who think they've earned a little platform before God because they've gone to church, given some money, confessed their sins, and they try to be good enough. So hopefully God will take them seriously. All people, including the people whose lives are as bad as David's, who know that there is no hope if they have to earn their way, God is making a promise to all people. Luke continues in verse 11. The Savior, yes, the Messiah the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. The city of David. Now, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that every Christmas when you read these words or hear these words, that you won't be able to read them without thinking of David. That they'll remind you that you are never too far from the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. Because if you are a promise breaker like David, unfaithful like David, someone who leveraged power for personal gain like David, who destroyed your family like David. If God can keep his word to David, then he'll keep his word to you. But even more than that, more than a thousand years after David had come and gone from the earth, Luke wrote in Acts chapter 13 that even after all of that ugly, God himself described David as a man after God's own heart. You see, in spite of his sin, and his brokenness. David never allowed his junk to get in the way of his relationship with God. He understood grace. We're not as good at that. How many times in our life have we sinned again and felt like we've lost our platform with God? Felt like there's this gulf between God and ourselves, and and there might be, but it's never because of God. But we feel this distance, and we try to be good enough again for God to want to close the gap. David sinned, confessed, pursued God like nothing ever happened, which made him a man after God's own heart. I don't want you to think that God accepts you in spite of your sin, that he loves you because he has to, but he doesn't really like you. 
because you are, after all, you. Not worthy. I mean, none of us is worthy. But it isn't up to us. Jesus paid it all to make us worthy because of our sin, not in spite of it. And that inside voice that lies to you needs to be silenced. You aren't just skating by, by the skin of your teeth. You are fully accepted, received, loved, warts and all. That's what his word says. And now we know, because of David, he keeps his promises. Because of who he is, not because of who we are. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. And suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. God promises peace, promised peace, peace for you and peace for me. Uh, the only way to have peace is for God to remove every obstacle to that peace. We call that sin. And it doesn't matter what you've done. You are never too far from the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. Let's pray. Father, you are the great promise keeper. Thank you that you have made a way to have relationship with us based on something that you've done, not something that we could ever do because we couldn't do. Even the best of us aren't righteous enough. Now, Father, it's likely that someone here today or watching online um, has never entered into a relationship with you, have never understood what it means when God promises something. I've never understood what it means that Jesus came, died, and rose again. And if that describes you today, this could be your life-changing moment. The moment where you decide that you're going to stop trying to be good enough and let God be good enough for you. Let Jesus be good enough for you. And it's really, it's really a simple thing to begin the process of becoming a Christ follower. It just takes a simple acknowledgement that, God, I believe in Jesus. I confess that my sins have made me not good enough. And now I need Jesus to help me know what to do next. The, the words themselves are less important than your heart. From here, it gets a little more, cha a, a little more challenging, a little harder to actually lay down all of that junk and move into what Christ has for you is part of our journey. But I invite you to enter into the journey today. God, for the rest of us, thank you that no matter what we do, we're never too far from the grace and mercy of our Savior.
and as we celebrate Jesus this holiday season. We pray that as we lift his name high above all other names, as we sing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to all men, that we would do it from a place that is, has a new understanding of what that promise means. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Once again, thank you for joining us in worship today. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. For those of you who make this ministry possible with your financial giving, thank you for your generosity and faithfulness. We know God is doing something in you when you give, but he also does something through you. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.